Welcome to Supercharge My Practice, a podcast dedicated to helping you build a thriving and fulfilling natural therapies business. Each week, your host, Anil Mustafa, interviews leading practitioners and field experts, sharing proven tactics, inspiring stories, and actionable steps that will help you unlock your potential. Supercharge My Practice is proudly brought to you by My Appointments Practice Management System. Welcome to the eighth episode of Supercharge My Practice. Today I have Dr. Andrea Huddleston, who's a woman's health natural fertility specialist and integrative chiropractor practicing in Perth, Australia. She's also the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Wellness Women's Radio. Now, in addition to her chiropractic degrees, Dr. Huddleston holds two postgraduate master's degrees in women's health medicine and reproductive medicine. She's also trained in nutritional and functional medicine and is a global leader in women's health as well as an educator and sought-after presenter. Hello, Andrea. Welcome. So great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I never get used to uh, being introduced like that. I just sit here awkwardly going, oh, this is so awkward for me. <laughs> Amazing accomplishments there, and I can imagine what it feels like to hear them being read back to you, but they're certainly well-deserved. Now, thank when I was coming you. up with what I wanted to interview on, Andrea, I could have sat here and come up with a million questions because you've got so many interesting niches and things that you're currently doing. So I've done my best to bring them all down to some uh, important things that I want to run you through. But I wanted to start off with how you became known as the period whisperer. Now, obviously, this is something you've gone into your niche. So I'd love to know how being known, how you became known as the period whisperer for starters, why you moved into niching and how it's impacted your practice's growth. Yeah, sure. Um, th- so the the nickname, the period whisperer, was actually um, coined by one of my patients, um, and it's you know a super weird nickname to kind of like attach yourself to, and it's especially hilarious when uh, you see men kind of process it when you know they say what you're the period whisperer because men are so literal they they I've I've literally had one ask me you know but where are you whispering to (laughs) which is just hilarious um so as part of the the work initially that I was doing um as sort of you know a a woman's health chiropractor um the techniques that I was gravitating towards and the work that I I was sort of doing I was able to kind of feed back to my patients their own physiology about look you know this is showing up so this is telling me ovulating or, um, you know, if, if women's periods were late and they needed it to come on, for example, there's certain techniques that you could do to help to just encourage that hormonal shift to bring on the period or as well, um, you know, the huge toolbox of period pain control techniques that I have as well. So that's sort of how it it initially started and then it kind of just caught on and I haven't been able to get away from it. So I'm sort of just trying to embrace it now because, um, you know, it's hilarious and uh, I think it's probably a fairly good summation of of what I do in a, in a quick little snippet. <laughs> Um, but I, um, to kind of give you a little bit of a background on how that sort of came to be as well, um, I think I was always destined to be in women's health and to be obsessed with women's health because I am one of five girls, so I have four sisters. And growing up, um, you know, even in, you know, my generation when we were growing up, our periods were sort of, we were kind of taught about them, but not really. Um, certainly my mom didn't offer like necessarily information about menstrual cycles or anything like that. So I sort of saw my older sister who was two years older than me 
um, have her period and suffered horrifically. You know, I remember watching her writhing and screaming on the floor when she had a burst ovarian cyst and it looked like something from The Exorcist. You know, it was... (laughs) So, um, you know, traumatizing for her, but also to me. And I'm watching this, um, you know, my sister like try and claw at her abdomen because she's trying to, in her words, trying to pull her ovaries out through her stomach because she was in so much pain. And as a little 11 year old at the time, I thought, oh my God, this is what I have to look forward to. And then, you know, growing up, every woman around me was dotted with some sort of hormonal dysfunction or horrific periods or, you know, fibroids like my mum had or hemorrhagic cycles or whatever it might be. And most of the time they were just told that it was normal, that they had drawn the short straw. This is all just part of being a woman. We're all expected to suffer through this until we get to menopause and then menopause is going to be completely horrific then and that's the end of your youth and your vitality and then it's just and then it's all over, right? (laughs) And that was certainly true, that story for all of the patients that I started attracting as well. Um, And I think just having so many sisters and growing up with only women that I was always probably going to be a little bit obsessed with it um, and it kind of snowballed from there. So did you naturally gravitate into that or was it because like because most people choose to go into a niche? Was it the niche Mm. that found you or did you start marketing yourself as Mm -hmm. part of that niche and connecting with clients? No, it definitely found me. Um, I quite early on in my clinical career, I had a patient um, who really changed everything for me. And she had the worst case of endometriosis that I'd ever seen or, you know, even read about in a textbook. And um, the amount of suffering that she experienced every single day that medicine had no answers for except a total hysterectomy, which they offered her in her early 20s, which I just cannot imagine, you know, and fortunately she didn't sort of go ahead with that. And the changes that we made to her system and to her life so quickly that then allowed her to just get on with life to, you know, some of the things that she'd always wanted to do, like, go and live in Cambodia to work with the Save the Children Foundation there. Um, You know, these things that are so meaningful and powerful, but she could never be away from Western medicine because of how much she was suffering. And so once I sort of started working with her and then started attracting all of these other women with similar circumstances, um, I just knew that this was it for me. Um, I had just seen so many women where again, medicine had failed them, that they were suffering so significantly. And there's so much misinformation and misconceptions around women's health. And there's so many snake oil treatments that are, you know, being offered to them. And everybody is a quote unquote expert. And so I was seeing woman after woman who had been failed by medicine. So they're desperately trying to find information elsewhere. And you know, it's usually fairly poor quality and they were just suffering so much. So from that point, I was pretty committed to really knowing my stuff. And if this was the avenue that I was going to go down, I needed to make sure that I wasn't going to just be another voice of misinformation for them. And I wasn't going to be, you know, offering them terrible things or you know, whatever it might be. So I needed to absolutely um, know my stuff, which is why I then went back to uni and did two 
my two master's degrees and um, have, haven't really stopped. It's sort of, gosh, 10 plus years of study mm-hmm. um, at least and, you know, however many years of clinical experience and thousands of patients and, and everything else along the way. So then patients found you, the niche mm-hmm. found you, and then those patients would have referred other patients to you. So yeah. did you actively go out there and try to connect with that niche or was it all through referral? You know, I was pretty lucky um, and have been incredibly lucky in my um, sort of practice journey and in the growth that I've had that it's happened organically. Like I haven't haven't done any marketing um you know, specifically for that, like obviously, you know, the podcast and interviews and speaking things and everything else that we do is, I guess, a, a form of marketing, but I've never done it in a direct way for patient growth. Um, if, you know, fortunately, that's just been a um, a lovely, um, you know, side part of that. Uh, but um, my initial practice growth was all just internal referrals and I had a really incredible network of um, just patients who uh, had really amazing changes and results and then, you know, told everybody, <laughs> which, you know, is, is obviously a really great way to build a practice. Absolutely. That's how I built my practice. I worked with a Cairo for a year um, as a contractor and then yeah, he took over the building and uh, being, you know, I was only 20 years old one time. I'd started being on my own as a practitioner, and it's it, I can't express enough to practitioners that are listening to this podcast how important client referrals are because it yeah. grows your practice on autopilot without you needing to do anything, provided that you're giving the care and the advice to your patients. So a lot of practitioners get a bit funny about it because they think they have to ask for referrals, and sometimes you may. But if for the most part, when you're good at what you do and when you're giving your patients all of your uh, experiences, all of your knowledge, your time, your energy, and when you can show that real compassion for that patient, you'll find that your practice will naturally grow quite easily uh, without having to spend any money on marketing. So I think it's really essential that practitioners understand the importance of those, building those client relationships and client retention in order to help grow their practices. Mm. So I think there's a bit of a misconception around niching as well. I think a lot of practitioners think if they move into the space of niching, it's going to exclude other people from wanting to come and see them. But you've just Mm. mentioned yourself, you've obviously got male patients asking you about being the period whisperer. So have Mm. you found that becoming known as niched in this women's health area that has impacted your practice growth or from you seeing patients that aren't that don't fall into that category of women's health yeah certainly um i remember i had a male patient who stopped coming in because he felt the practice was too feminine for him um which was hilarious and i was completely okay with because you know that wasn't wasn't exactly my niche it doesn't mean that we can't help him but we weren't the right place for him um and I just always found that I always had a good giggle about that um I think there's this old there's that old adage of if you um target everyone you speak to no one I'm I'm paraphrasing there I'm doing a terrible job of it but uh for me my absolute passion and obsession is women's health and fertility. And um, I am not good at 
you know, for example, sports or athletes or, um, you know, certainly I do see a small amount of kids um, who are, you know, kids of, of my um, existing patients, but I am in no means the expert in pediatric care, but we do have someone in our practice who is. So um, I am very happy to tell patients that I don't know certain things. Um, and I think initially when we start out, we want to be the expert at everything. But I do think that that is really unrealistic. Uh, and, you know, I am just could not care less about, you know, just chronic pain or sports or, you know, that is just not my thing. So someone else is going to do that so much better than me. Um, but I also know that in the, I guess, niche that I'm in, that no one does that better than me, if that makes sense, yeah. because of how committed I am to it. And everything I do, you know, all my time, all my energy, all my um, learning, everything goes into this um, for that reason, if yeah, that sort of makes sense. And, and what you said is absolutely spot on. When you speak to everyone, you speak to no one, and that's yeah. why niching is so important in practice. It doesn't mean you have to exclude seeing other people outside of your specific niche. It's just mm. that out there you do your marketing. You want to try and speak to a single person because there's going to be more than one that one single person, right, that has that same condition, but you're, you're writing your copy as if you're speaking to a single person in order to help connect with that person. So I think it's, again, another important lesson here that a lot of practitioners want to go into niching, but they're worried that they're not going to grow enough because they're going to be excluding some patients. But, again, if you're putting copy out there that speaks to everybody, then it's really not speaking to anyone. So I think I personally love that saying because I think it really resonates with how copy should be written when it's speaking to direct people. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move on to the podcast. You've got the Wellness Women's Radio, which has won awards and uh, gained a substantial following. So how did podcasting help you in growing your practice and what advice do you have for practitioners looking to leverage podcasts to grow their own practice? Um. Well, we've had Wellness Women Radio for like seven or eight years now. And the time when we started that, um, again, I think we were just really lucky that we got in the podcast game just at this like pivotal moment, I think. Um, and so our growth was exponential, um, so much more than what um, Dr. Ashley Bond, who's my co-host of Wellness Women Radio, um, so much more than what we expected. So initially we essentially just wanted almost like a filing system of information that we could just refer our patients to so that we weren't having the same conversations over and over again. And Ash and I also have this passion and deep love of just constantly learning new things and just, you know, this love of knowledge. Um, so whenever there was a topic that we wanted to learn more about, we just thought, well, if we can teach it, then we'll know it better. So that was sort of the idea around the podcast as well. And it just kind of went off like gangbusters. I think the consistency of how often we were podcasting at the time, like religiously at least once a week, um, I think that helped sort of grow that um, audience really quickly. And we were soon the number one women's health podcast in Australia and always in the top 10 of iTunes, um, you know, for all the podcasts worldwide for a really long time. Um, that's definitely not true anymore because we're much less consistent with um, how often we're sort of releasing. Um, but that's, you know, life sort of happens. And along that podcast journey, Ash has had two kids. Um, you know, I've 
opened my practice along the way and got married, all sorts of things. So, you know, um, the people who've been with us along our podcast journey sort of will see that kind of evolution of what's happened in our life along the way too. Um, but I think uh, in terms of how we've leveraged that, um, I think it's just helped us to talk to, you know, obviously to talk to more, more people, have a bigger audience and um, also gives us a bit of authority as well, um, just, you know, having that kind of audience. But it's also a bit of pressure because we have to know our stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of the information that we sort of put out there seven or eight years ago is no longer current. So we've always committed to, as things change, we will update, um, you know, our knowledge and our resources and our references and everything along the way. So we're having to now sometimes go back over topics because what was true then is not now. Does that make sense? Um, Because obviously health is always so ever evolving. Um, Now, you asked me, I totally digress. So you asked me what advice I would give to practitioners looking to leverage a podcast to grow their practice. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think it's much harder to gain momentum in terms of an audience with a podcast these days because there's so many of them. So initially I would suggest just committing to um, consistency of recording and releasing. And I do think it probably needs to be weekly or fortnightly initially. Um, And I think getting, um, you know, depending on the format of what they're trying to do, getting experts on, um, that will help them to have that platform initially and will get them good at interviewing and just being comfortable speaking on the mic and those sorts of things initially, I think really helps. Um, And, you know, even if it doesn't create a huge platform, at least um, it is a great system for their patients to then sort of look for other knowledge that patients can share with their friends and everything else, which will still be a great referral source. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very good point because you do get patients often coming back to you asking you the same thing over and over again. And it yeah. Especially if patients are contacting you between care as well. We mm-hmm. do know that there are patients that are sort of looking for a little bit of free advice or trying to take on a little bit more of your time outside of the consulting room. And so referring back to a blog or a podcast yeah. receive that information uh, would save practitioners so much time. Now, for those listening, if you are looking to get into podcasting, we manage The Wellness Couch where we take your raw file, we'll edit, publish it and promote it through The Wellness Couch. You can go to thewellnesscouch.com for more information on that. But I want to know a little bit more specifically about how you think it helped catapult your career as well, Andrea, because obviously it exploded. So I'm imagining that after the podcast had exploded, you probably got a lot more patient inquiries or people wanting you to speak mm. at events or wanting to interview you. So did you find that the podcast itself helped catapult your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was probably a really important um, sort of pivotal thing in my success. Um, and also I think that it because of how quickly it grew and um, Ashley and I sort of had to sit down and go, okay, we've, we've actually, you know, got quite a powerful platform here. We need to take this quite seriously. And I think that also is part of what really encouraged me to, um, you know, just go back to uni to like do all of those sorts of things so that if I really wanted to be an authority here, I absolutely had to know my stuff inside and out. Um, So, you know, from that sort of perspective, we took it really seriously and it did um, dramatically 
um, helped to put us in the public eye, I think, just because there was so many speaking opportunities that came from it, um, which I love, you know. Um, there were so many wellness summits that we did and lots of other sort of live events and um, also just the cross-pollination into lots of other, you know, big podcasts and radio shows and everything else from there as well. Excellent. So obviously podcasting has helped you grow your practice. You mm-hmm. have done some presentations and that would have helped your practice grow as well. And obviously the fact that your niching has made a substantial difference in your practice growth. But have you mm-hmm. or do you follow any regular or any sort of strategies that you use to build your practice outside of those things that we've already spoken about? Oh, um, no. No. <laughs> and I, I know that's not going to be very helpful for the audience if they're trying to, you know, that's the advice that they're looking for. Um, I literally don't do anything to grow my practice except for trying to give my patients the absolute best care and service that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, someone once said to me, and this really stuck, um, that, and it, for me it really landed, is that new patients don't come from out here, as in they don't come from external, they come from in here. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm gesturing to to my heart. Um, I think that when you're in a position and you have the energy and capacity to serve, I think the right people will find you. Um, and the things that I think that I do well is communicate um, I, th- I think that my communication strategies with my patients are quite good um, and I, that's something that I've certainly worked on and just to make sure that wherever they want to go and what their health goals and what their big picture health journey looks like, um, I can then take that and try and work out the best strategy to get them there and communicate that to them in a way that is meaningful to them. Mm. Um, I will always try and give them as best loving service as I can. Um, and I think that my patients know that um, they're getting the best possible care as well um, and that, you know, we absolutely know our staff. We're not going to BS them um, and we're there to support them along that entire journey. Um, and I think that that's probably um, been you know, the strategies that that have built my practice. Did you have someone initially who was referring patients onto you? Because obviously growing your practice from a referral base is the best way to build a practice, but you need to get your first client, you need to get your second client and your third client. So in those very early days, were you fortunate enough to have someone referring to you or did Mm. you work with a chiropractor or how, how did you get to that stage of being where you didn't need to market yourself anymore? Um, I had uh, just a few core patients that I think probably single-handedly built my practice for me initially. <laughs> um, and yeah, and they, um, you know, had some incredible results quite early on. Like, for example, a guy that had um, such significant insomnia for, you know, I think 10 to 12 years that we resolved fairly quickly. Um, I had a um, a gym owner who um, was quite um, passionate and influential in his community that referred to me um, 
a lot. And I think those things really, really helped. Um, and obviously I was very grateful for their support. So um, they knew that their referrals were really important and very valued as well. So I think that that sort of encouraged them to to keep doing that. And um, also they saw that their performance in their, um, you know, people who went to their gym and and the other people who referred to me changed as well. So they were seeing those results, which allowed them to, you know, and that's obviously how things snowball too. Um, and now, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, GPs and endocrinologists and, you know, all sorts of um, medical practitioners as well that refer to me, which I feel so, so grateful for um, and also try and let them know that um, they're really valued and I appreciate their support as well. And I think that's something that a lot of practitioners uh, don't see is that asking for referrals can be quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And again, you get to that stage where you don't need to do it. But in those initial stages when you're trying to grow your practice, when you've been able to help a patient so much, the best compliment they can give you is to refer another patient on and mm-hmm. letting them know that in a way that you feel comfortable saying that to patients I- I think it's really, really important to get that message across because our patients want to do something to help us too. And they don't, you know, they're paying us for our time, but sometimes it's not quite enough. Yes. So referring on is a huge, huge, huge compliment. But then what about client retention? Do you think that you're able to retain your clients as well as you do just because of that level of commitment that you have to your patients? Or do you have active strategies that you utilize within your clinic in order to retain your patients? Oh, good question. Um, that's probably something that I don't pay enough attention to and I probably should. Uh, <laughs> and um, I think that when you're really busy, um, you don't really focus, and you probably should, you don't necessarily focus on that retention as much as what you should. And I'm I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, there's always, the, always those patients that pop into your head in the middle of the night and you think, oh, I haven't seen that person for a while. I wonder how they're going. Um, and whenever that happens, I'll always reach out to them and just check in. And it's not in a way like saying, you know, make sure you book in and come back under care, but it's just a, hey, I've been thinking of you. How are you going? Um, and I think that patients appreciate that and that, and we always try and make them feel like they're a part of our family and our community as well, which means that it's completely normal for them to change their priorities at certain times and for them to, you know, maybe their health journey changes and we're a part of their life for a specific purpose. Um, And sometimes that's all they need us for and that's absolutely okay. Um, I think not having an attachment to that is a really good way of um, taking a bit of stress off in practice as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But also knowing that if there's, um, a pattern to when patients are falling out of care, for example, then maybe you do need to look at certain ways that you're communicating um, certain things because you may be missing the mark and that's why their um, patients are falling out of care. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's there's always that idea that I can't remember who, who said this, but um, when you don't have that retention, it's usually because patients then feel like they're not important once that initial sale is made. So they'll feel important in maybe the first couple of appointments, but then once you've got that commitment, then they're like, oh, well, I'm not important anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's the last thing we ever want them to feel. And um, we give them that, you know, I say loving service, but that um, attention, our absolute sole focus and presence when we're with them and everything else along the way as much as we possibly can. 
Mm, yeah, so important. And even sometimes patients drop out of care. You could be the best practitioner, but a patient mm. drops out of care just because life's got in the way. So a simple exactly. SMS, uh, just checking in to see how you're doing, can go a really, really long way in retaining patients. Mm. So I recently interviewed Damien Christoph, and he was the wonderful Damien, I must say. He's awesome to speak to. And he highlighted the effects uh, or the benefits of community events in building his practice. And he mentioned that Mm -hmm. he had um, you fly down from Perth all the way to Melbourne to run a women's health event. So he's a chiropractor, Mm -hmm. you're a chiropractor. He's getting somebody in his field, although you are in in a different niche to, to him. He's getting someone in the same profession coming down from another state to do a talk for his patients. So I'd love to explore that a little bit with you and what that resulted or what do you think that resulted for him having another expert Mm -hmm. come in and speak on a different topic and whether you've run community events yourself and whether they've helped Mm -hmm. grow your practice too. Yeah, great. Um, I love Damien. He's honestly one of my favourite people on the planet Um, and he is such a massive supporter of mine, um, which I am just so eternally grateful for. And um, Damien was a huge influence in my practice and in the, I think, success of my practice as well. Um, So he will often run um, workshops for his patients, um, you know, big, you know, workshops, like 100 plus people sort of events um, quite often. And they're amazing for um, just giving patients the information that they need and really helping them to make meaningful change in their health and their life. And uh, Damien's expertise is not women's health and he acknowledges that. So that's why he gets me in to, um, you know, do workshops for his female patients. And he'll often have, um, you know, his female practitioners run and lead these events and it is a practice building strategy for them. And at the um, at the workshops, I'll encourage um, you know them to book in for care with um, you know Damien's associates, who are those female practitioners. Uh, and it is a really great practice building strategy for them. And I've done um, these workshops for you know heaps of practitioners um, around the country, and it is for that purpose of you know new patient referrals and and building that practice. Um, and has been quite successful at that um, yeah. because, um, you know, it's giving them information that they are looking for and with tips and tools along the way. Which is quite amazing to me because you're the speaker, so people are going to connect with you as the speaker. They're going to connect with your message. And yet, obviously, if Damien and other practitioners are running these events and finding them beneficial, it goes to show you the power of having other people come in and essentially help you assert your own authority to some degree to help you build your own practice. So there's a lot Mm. of practitioners that may want to do these things but aren't confident in speaking. So this is testament to the fact that you don't have to be the speaker. You could just be the event organiser and find people to come in and speak on your niche or another area that may benefit your practice as well. So I think that's quite amazing that he's had other people come in and speak and it still helped him grow his own practice as well. Mm. Um, yeah, okay, let's talk about Insta. All right, you're on Instagram, you've got 18,000 followers. You said that you don't really do a lot out there in terms of marketing your practice. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about your social media strategy. How did you build your following to get to where you are and how has it contributed to your practice's growth? 
Oh, I'm so bad at social media, like so bad. I go through fits and starts. Like sometimes I'm really consistent with like posting on my stories, which is more often than not just pics of my dogs, by the way, um, <laughs> which is like my highest priority. Um, that and then, you know, women's health. Um, but I found that I had a, a really sharp increase in following uh, followers um, before COVID when we were doing lots of live events. Uh, and it was just as simple as, you know, literally being in front of such a large population of people and them seeing me and then searching for me. And then that's sort of how it happened. Um, I've also been really lucky to connect with some fairly in, like influential people within those circles, like, you know, Damien and Kale Brock and, you know, those sorts of guys who were just so supportive of me and we did lots of things together. And then I think just leveraging from their following, um, it sort of naturally spilled over into mine as well, which was amazing. Um, I was certainly a lot more committed to um, building that pre-COVID. And I think I had like 20,000 something followers pre-COVID. And so it's dropped a little bit just because I'm just inconsistent with it, which, you know, is fine for now. And I'll get some motivation to do some more stuff on it eventually. Um, But it certainly like, yeah, it certainly has helped um, with practice growth because I do get a lot of new patient inquiries that come through there um, just because they'll see obviously what I'm posting about that sometimes I have quite a different take on a lot of things in particular, you know, period pain or endometriosis or whatever it might be. Um, And so that sort of speaks to people specifically. And the good thing about Instagram is that even if you're not posting consistently, patients who might find you can obviously go back from your feed and have Mm. a look at all the other things that you've posted and then resonate with those and that may result in them uh, contacting you for an appointment. So that's really interesting that you've got a great following there but you're not consistent with your posts, which is probably not the message we want to get out there to. No, so don't take social media advice from me because I'm so bad at it. But But watch this space. Maybe I'll get better. Yeah, but look, it just goes to show that if you've got quality content, even if you're not consistent, you can still use it to leverage new patients from there as well. So that's great. All right, so a couple more questions for you. Let's talk about your secondary income stream. So you've got the wellness women who run a 28-day hormone reset uh, program. You've also got a monthly practitioner membership subscription. And I also noticed that you've got live events that you're running all across Australia to help practitioners specialize in the field of women's Mm. health. So tell us a little bit about why you created these programs and uh, why they're essentially important for you in terms of revenue stream and outside of your one-on-one consultations. Um, I... Oh, that's that's such a good question. Um, And I'm trying to think how I can frame this. Um, I love working with patients um, and... You know, I think I'll always be doing that, but my absolute favorite thing is teaching. So um, as I sort of became more and more obsessed with women's health and have sort of changed the way I practice a little bit, I started getting lots of inquiries from other practitioners about how I'm doing certain things, and that's why I started teaching. Um, And then we started running sort of group programs of for example, through the Wellness Women, we've got our 28-day hormone reset, um, which allows us to uh, help to make like a lot of change for a group of people rather than sort of that one-on-one thing where we may be giving similar advice to women um, over and over. And it, so it, it just 
kind of takes away that time um, and also the expense for patients as well. You know, maybe they they don't want to go through, um, you know, the expense of an, an initial consultation and everything else along the way, but being part of a group program might be more financially viable for them and they'll still get, you know, fantastic results. So that's sort of where we started that. Um, and the teaching and the seminars and everything is obviously, um, you know, it, it is a really great um, rewarding system and it is financially rewarding as well. I don't think anything is as financially rewarding as being in practice. Um, you know, nothing sort of takes the place of that right now, um, but it, it certainly has the potential to be so if I wanted to put more, in time, more time and energy into it. Um, but I think that for me and the way my brain works, I need to have more than just one project on the go at, at once. Otherwise, I'll just flounder and I'll do nothing. So I need kind of that pressure to to do that is does that sort of answer your question yeah, it does. I really relate to that I, I work much better under pressure when I've got lots of time I totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> time I'll get in and do that that's great because a lot of practitioners are looking for secondary income streams uh, so that they can move away from that one-on-one or reduce the amount of time that the one-on-one takes and at, at an interview with Cindy O'Meara she talked about the fact that in that one-to-many environment and in that community type environment some people actually learn better and do better with their peers going through the same thing than the one-on-one consult. So it's a great way to increase your revenue but also to help other people who may not necessarily resonate with that one-on-one model. So you've got nearly a decade of experience in your field and a track record of significant achievements. Uh, What factors do you attribute to your remarkable success? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) I was lucky enough to have some really incredible mentors very early on. Uh, who I think really shaped the kind of practitioner that I am. Um, and these influences were, you know, even as a teenager, when I knew what I wanted to be doing, they sort of took me under their wing and um, really taught me some fundamental things that I still sort of resonate with today. Um I think that I've had some really amazing coaches along the way as well. Um, You know, I am really good at the clinical side of things. I feel like I'm really good at, say, communicating with patients, but I'm not very good at, say, running the business. And I don't want to be either. You know, I just, I am not ever going to be an expert at any of those things. So I have hired, you know, people to give me the direction on that that I need who are much better at those sorts of things than what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the right team with me as well. So, um, you know, I've got eight staff who do all the stuff that I don't want to do <laughs> so that I can just focus on, um, you know, like I think they call it your zone of genius. So, um, like, yes, <laughs> yeah, so that I can just focus on you know, the clinical side of things and teaching and and everything else. So I think that that has really um, made a big difference for my sort of time and energy. Um, But also I am passionately obsessive about women's health and serving women. Um, And I think if I wasn't, then people, that would resonate with people and they would would feel that inauthenticity as well. Um, so the fact that I absolutely obsessively love what I'm doing, I think that that helps. Yeah, that's great. 
So final question for you, and it's something that I ask all of my interviewees. If you were to give just one piece of advice to natural health practitioners aiming to build a successful business that they love, what would it be? Oh, gosh, one piece of advice. Um, I think if they're starting out, really get a mentor. Um, And it doesn't, you know, maybe they don't financially are in a position to pay someone, but maybe they can find someone who they want to emulate and there's some sort of way that they can maybe shadow them for some time or observe them in clinic or they can, um, you know, catch up with them, offer to buy them coffee or something and pick their brains or whatever it might be. But I think a mentor is so, so powerful and important um, because otherwise they're literally trying to reinvent the wheel Um, and you don't know what you don't know. So I think that um, if they have someone who's modeling the kind of success that they, that they want and understanding how they're doing those things, um, can be really powerful. And if they're not starting out, maybe they've been in practice for a long time. I think the two things that have really made a difference for me, and I think what I'm good at is communication and just obsessive loving service. Yeah. I love <laughs> you know, that. Yeah, it's it's so simple. You know, um, I think it's Gary V. He's got a quote that says the best marketing strategy ever is care. That is yeah, it. Totally. And yeah. it's it's the most simplest thing. And most people don't realize that marketing or growing a business is actually not that difficult. It's all about giving your patients the love and care that they need to give them the results that they need, which will then naturally help you grow your practice. So yeah, fine thing sometimes makes the world of a difference. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's wonderful to have you on board. Thank you for the amazing insights you've been able to give our practitioners. Oh, thank you so much. Um, It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in today and I look forward to having you join me in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with the latest releases and for more helpful tips, look for me on Instagram under the handle Supercharge My Practice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by My Appointments.